Our scripture reading this morning is one of the benedictions that are in the scriptures. This is the benediction to the book of Hebrews. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do his will, working in us through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. We are looking at the benedictions, the prayers, and the doxologies of Scripture in our summer series. I called it this morning the benediction to the book of Hebrews, and that's the way it is subtitled, of course, in our ESV translation. But actually, the benediction to Hebrews is the very last verse. Let me read it to you and see if it doesn't sound like a benediction. Verse 25, the very last sentence of the book. Grace be with all of you. There's the real benediction to the book. The book of Hebrews is an interesting book because it is a letter for sure, because in the very last paragraph, the writer says, I have written to you briefly. Some people think the book of Hebrews is not all that brief. It is one of the longer epistles, and it's very dense. Indeed, the writer says that he has written to you. But the structure of the book follows a homily. It's a sermon, and it begins with God as the very first word, and then goes through to expound an enormous amount of truth, tying countless Old Testament theology principles and doctrines into the person and the work of Christ and into the church. The book of Hebrews is a treatise on the fulfillment of the covenant that God had made with his people and how it's fulfilled in Christ and in those that belong to Christ. This particular passage here is... A benediction, as we have said, it is a good word. That's what benediction means. It's a very good word. In fact, it's an encouraging word. It is a prayer as well. It says, may God, it's a plea that God would do something. So it's a prayer. And then it is also a doxology. Because the whole thrust of the paragraph is, to whom be glory forever and ever Amen. And that glory goes to Jesus Christ. It is Christocentric. It all centers in Christ. But the book is filled with exhortation. In fact, the book is called by its writer in verse 22, I appeal to you, brothers, Bear with my word of exhortation. Isn't it interesting how the scripture writer has to ask us to 
bear with him and to pay attention and to, and to stay with it? You think the writer anticipated that it would be such a treatise that maybe not every Christian would work his way through it very often? Maybe he knew that it was a little bit different than the letters that had been written by Paul and the other apostles. Maybe he knew that it needed a little bit of a word of encouragement. And the word that's translated exhortation is the word you're familiar with. It's the word parakletos. It's the paraclete. It's someone that's called alongside to render aid. It's the comfort that is given. And so the writer is giving us a good word, a benediction. He's giving us a prayer. This is his prayer for the saints, for the believers. And it's also a doxology. It centers, and I hope we'll see in just a moment, how the whole thing centers around Christ and the gospel. He calls it a brief word. He calls it a word of exhortation. So let me just sketch for you in reading it this week again. I pulled out about a dozen exhortations, a dozen things that we are encouraged to do. Now, it's not all of them. I left some of them out because they are embedded and not so stark in the sentences. But let me give you some of the exhortations that the book of, he book of Hebrews gives us. He says, first of all, we must pay attention or pay closer attention to the message. By the way, as I read these exhortations, I want you, as you listen to them and maybe jot them down, but at least bear them in mind, I want you just to tick off one, just one out of the dozen. I'm not asking for a whole lot. Find one in this list that can be your exhortation for this week, today, and the near future. Something that will give you what you need in your life, the one the Spirit lays on your heart to make your exhortation of the week. He says, pay closer attention to the message. It's the message of the gospel. It's the message that's been received. It's the message the writer says that he received of those who actually heard the Lord. And he says it's a message that we will not survive. We, how can we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Is it that we have not paid close attention to the gospel? We've not looked at the details. We've not looked at the parameters. We've not looked at the implications. We've not really paid close attention to the message. And he exhorts us to pay closer attention to the message. I promise you, every time you focus upon the gospel in your personal Bible study and in your personal life, you will see new dimensions, new facets, new depths, new riches. We've all heard the gospel. We trace the gospel every Sunday in our sermons and in our liturgy of our church. But closer attention is perpetually required of the believer. Well, I must hurry on. He tells us to consider Jesus, the faithful servant of God. He contrasts him with Moses, the servant of God in the old covenant. And now God's servant is a son. It is Jesus Christ, God's only son. And he says, consider Jesus. I won't go any further than that this morning. Have you considered Jesus? Have you seen what Jesus is all about? Who he is historically and who he is deliberately in your life? Your whole eternal destiny depends 
on what you do with Christ. What think ye of Christ? So isn't it a good exhortation to consider Jesus? He says, take care that you do not fall away with an unbelieving heart. Very rich and very sober warnings in chapter 3 and again in chapter 6 of Hebrews about this notion of falling away. And you can preach to me perseverance of the saints till you're blue in the face. And I will tell you that it's the saints that persevere, not presumptive sinners. You cannot sin that grace may abound. The whole point of salvation is to save you from your sins. And you need to take seriously every admonition in Scripture that speaks of an apostasy, a falling away, a failing. Because it is by these dire warnings that we are kept in the faith and in the line. And you cannot let any one of these warnings pass you by. He tells us to strive to enter the rest. The rest of God is the Sabbath of God. When God says, I've done it all, you need to rest. When God says, I'm doing it and accomplishing it all, you need to rest. You need to rest in me. Strive to enter the rest. He tells us, let us, and then the next uh, half a dozen or more always are translated with that, let us. Let us do this, let us do that, let us do something else. It's sometimes in the subjunctive mood, and they call it the salad subjunctive because it's translated let us. And that's something you pick up if you get about to your second year of seminary. So listen to these, let us, the salad here of exhortations. Let us hold fast our confession. Not only cling to it, but stand for it. The confession that we have made. Let us draw near to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and get what we need in time of need to help. Let us go on to maturity. Oh, watch I could camp out right there because there's a rebuke in this letter for those who understand the first principles about maybe salvation, truth, and baptism, and some things like that, but they've not gone on to a deeper and a richer understanding. They've not taken on the meat of the Word. They've been satisfied to live upon the, the milk of the Word their whole lives. He says, let us go on to maturity. He says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance. Let us consider how to stir up one another to good works. <laughs> I like that. That's a good exhortation. Stir up, provoke one another to good works. Help each other out and point out that there are things to be done in terms of ministry and find those things and do it. Let us lay aside every sin that besets us. That might be a good one to check. Let us lay aside every sin that besets us. He says, let us run with endurance. It's an endurance run. It's not a sprint. It's a long distance run. Let us run with endurance, looking to Jesus. Looking into Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. 
He says, let us offer to God acceptable worship, reverence, and awe. And then he goes into chapter 13, 12 and 13, where he gives us exhortations concerning those acts of worship and reverence and awe. And then finally, this one, do not refuse him who is speaking. That's that effectual call that comes in our soul by the work of the Holy Spirit, where he begins to stir us and speak to us in our conscience by his word and by his spirit. The the voice of God comes to us. Let us not refuse him who is speaking. You see, when God calls you, it's not the call that you refuse. It's God that you refuse. He is coming to you in the gospel and coming to you in his word, calling you to himself. And when you refuse the call, when you don't listen to and heed the call, you basically refuse him. Now let's look at the the benediction briefly. It's basically a good long sentence. It has a subject and a verb. I would ask you to diagram the sentence, but most of us haven't diagrammed a sentence since the fifth or sixth grade, and we wouldn't know what in the world we're doing. But the subject of the sentence is God. God's at work. God's doing something. And he's, his prayer is that God would really accomplish it and do it for you, you personally. And what is it that God is doing? Well, it's found in verse 21, the very first word, equip. It says, may God, and he says some things about God, which we'll see, equip, equip you. This is a very personal message. This is certainly a letter written to the heart and soul of the individual, as well as to the corporate church. May God equip you. What does that word equip means? It means to, how would you like God to do these things in your life? And this is the the root idea of this word that's used. It's translated equip. To mend. May God mend you. Restore. May God restore you. May God set you right. It means to set right. It means to make complete God finishing a work within you. It means to strive for perfection. May God move you in your strivings. One of the things he mentions is not only to strive to enter the rest, but the word strive is to use to strive to be at peace with all people and to have peace and godliness in our lives. It's a striving for perfection. It means to prepare. That might be a good um, word to use in the translation. This word means to prepare. It means to supply. It means to make, to simply make. And then the idea that I like is that you may be fully trained. May God fully train you. 
We hear a lot about training these days. We hear a lot about physical training and we hear a lot about training for work and training for jobs. And, and, but what about training in righteousness? What about training in holiness? What about training in ministry? What about the training that comes of the enhancement, the making of, of perfect and making of complete and setting right and restoring of the godly virtues? And there's a purpose, the scripture tells us here, for this training, is that God will equip you with everything good. It's just a general statement. But it has that ring to it of the goodness of God giving you what you need in every circumstance of your life. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. That the Lord, that God equip you with everything good that you might walk around and be better than everybody else. Well, I don't think so. There's a purpose for your training and God supplying those things and building you up and fully training you and restoring and mending you and making you whole is in order that you may do His will. The will of God is this, in this instance is the, the preceptive will of God. That is God's precepts. People want to know the will of God for your life. Who shall I marry? Where shall I vacation? What shall I do in terms of ministry? Perhaps some of these things are known only to the Lord and He guides you in a path and you eventually get there and He leads you day by day as you walk in step with the Spirit. The real will for God, for, of God in your life is for you to walk in His precepts, His laws, His commandments, to obey Him, to learn them, to do them, to obey them, even to move to the point where you love them and delight in them. And you don't see the yoke of obedience as a burden, but you see it as a joyful expression of what He has done for you and a working out of who you are in Christ. To do His will working in us that which is pleasing in His sight. God is at work in us, both to will and to do of His good pleasure, we're told by Paul. Well, that's the same thing that's being said here, essentially. The Lord is bringing us to the place where we do that which is pleasing to Him. Don't we want to please God? Isn't that our, our heart? Well, God is at work. We need to recognize the hand of God doing those things in our life that we might keep His precepts and we might therefore please Him. And then the doxology. Through Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever. Glorifying God is what it's all about. But the glorifying of God is that we glorify His Son. Jesus sent a very intricate and beautiful prayer to the Father recorded in John 17. Talks about how He had glorified God on earth. And then He prays that the Father would glorify Him. And here the doxology is that all glory 
be given to the Son. The word glory here is, of course, the word doxa. We get our word doxology. It means praise and glory. But one thing you'll learn if you do a little Bible study for a while, you'll learn that the New Testament writers wrote in Greek for the most part, but they thought in Hebrew. In fact, it's my suspicion that the writer of this particular epistle was very steeped in the Old Testament and in the Hebrew language. So he might have written doxa for his first century Greek audience. But what he had in mind was the kabod, the Hebrew, the weight, the heaviness, the importance, the import of Jesus Christ. How important is Jesus Christ in this whole economy that God has set up, this whole plan of salvation? Well, he set it forth in no uncertain terms. In the very beginning there, he says, the God of peace, the God of shalom, it might be Irenaeus in Greek, but it is shalom in biblical thought. The God of shalom who did what? Who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ. The glory and the import of God was placed upon Christ when He raised Him from the dead. God, it was the cloud on the Mount of Transfiguration. It was the cloud that received Christ up in ascension. And it's the cloud that He is coming again to bring us to Himself. He brought again Jesus from the dead, the resurrection. The central point of the glory of Christ is in the resurrection. He's the first fruits of all that are dead. He is the one who came forth from the grave, raised in glory and in power, evident, manifest. Every eye could see that witness the live and living Lord after the crucifixion. Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep. There's your rich theme to study in Scripture. Go back and study the whole idea of shepherds. That's how God's led his people from the beginning. Abraham was a shepherd. Moses was a shepherd. David was a shepherd. When God talks about the leadership of His people, He talks about the shepherds of Israel. And He talks about the failing of the shepherds of Israel. He talks about, I will give them a shepherd, a true shepherd, a good shepherd, shepherd a great shepherd. And Jesus is that person. That's why David could say in the ancient day, the Lord is my shepherd. He's the shepherd of His, his flock. He's the shepherd of His sheep. We come to Him in all of our need, in our hunger, and in our brokenness, and in our sin, and our waywardness, and our straying, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, but God has laid on him the, the iniquity of us all. He is the shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. He is a lamb. Not just the shepherd, but the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And that's what the final point here talks about, and that it refers to the blood of the covenant. If you want to really understand the atonement of Jesus Christ, study the book of Hebrews. 
as it takes you back to the book of Leviticus and other Old Testament passages, showing us without any question whatsoever that Christ is that high priest. He is that shepherd. He is that lamb. He is that sacrifice that one had is given. And once for all, he made an atonement for his people and redeemed them by his blood. From the splattering of the blood on the doorpost at Passover, all the way through to the splattering of the blood on the old rugged cross. It's God's picture. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And God says, when I come to look down over the judgment bar at the great assize, and I'm looking to judge each and every solitary soul, I will tell you this. When I see the blood, I will pass over.